Did you know that after the French Revolution in the 1700s, right after the American Revolution, the French actually changed their calendar to have 10 days in a week instead of seven? Have you guys ever heard this before? They changed the calendar so there were 10 days in the week, 10 hours in a day, 100 minutes in an hour, and 100 seconds in a minute. And it did not go very well, okay? <laughs> but, the, you know, Napoleon rose to power 12 years later and, and totally changed it back to normalcy. And their reasoning for doing this, they had like a reactive reason and a proactive reason for doing this. Their reactive reason was to, quote, de-Christianize France. The ruling elite had been incredibly abusive and just horrible, the, the, the royalty, the queen, and they were like the representation to the, to the country of what it meant to be Christian, basically. And the church and the state were just one thing, you know? So they wanted to resist and reject all Christian influence. And the, you know, seven-day week comes from the Bible. Well, the proactive reason they did this, and what's a little bit more germane for what we're talking about today, was to increase productivity. They thought, if we can work for nine days straight, rather than six days straight, our economy will benefit. Like, you know, and that's kind of reasonable, right? Like, let's work more and our GDP will go up, right? You know, like the economy will be strong and um, we can do this, let's go. Nine days of work a week and only one day of rest. Well, guess what happened? An environment was created for a, a dictator nuts, nutso bag named Napoleon to come to power, okay? Like that's how well it was going. The economy tanked. It had a horrible impact on the economy. And what's even worse, mental health of the, of the country at large, suicide rates radically increased. And people like were breaking down and literally wanting to give up on life rather than work nine days straight. We hear that and we think how stupid, like how crazy, you know? But did you know that in the United States, listen to this, okay? Bob Sullivan, who is a New York Times bestselling author and, and journalist, listen to this. He did a study. Um, he wrote this article in 2015. A study published last year by Jen, John Penkovel of Stanford University makes the bold claim that productivity falls sharply after about 50 hours worked in a seven-day week. It falls off of a cliff after 55 hours. In fact, People who worked 70 hours in his study basically accomplished nothing more than people who worked 55 hours. So there it is, go home for dinner. <laughs> so after 50 hours, you're a lot less productive. After 55 hours, it doesn't matter if you work one more minute, you're not really getting anything done. Now that's not to say that no one has ever accomplished anything working more than 55 hours, but this is solid statistics, solid research about what we are designed for and our limits. You know, and this is, this is gonna make me just fall over and throw up right now, okay? In 2019, Americans left 768 million days of paid time off unused. 
768 million days in our country could have been taken to rest and they were left on the table. How many of us have been before like, well, what are my benefits at this new job? How many weeks vacation? Oh, I have to work five years before I get extra work, extra week of vacation? Like what the heck? Ah. You wouldn't even take it. I wouldn't even take it. <laughs> Listen to this about multitasking. This is from an article by the Cleveland Clinic on men, on men, and the, the article is on mental health. Some of the negative side effects of multitasking. Well, hold on on that, Stella, on that quote. Studies indicate that only 2.5% of people are able to multitask in a productive way. Only 2.5% are able to multitask in a productive way. Turn to your neighbor and say, you ain't in that 2.5%, okay? <laughs> The negative effects of multitasking include capacity to focus decreases. People's capacity to learn actually decreases the more they multitask. Because what do you have to do to learn? Focus on one thing. Well, when you're multitasking all the time, your brain's like, this is how we do it. This is what we do. Like, I'm sick of learning that one thing. Please go to something else. Quick, let's go, let's go, let's go. Squirrel, squirrel, squirrel because you're used to doing multiple things. So when you try and focus on one thing, your, your capacity to do that is actually decreased. This is one that I feel the most. And by the way, you know what they call it when you're not multitasking? Monotasking. That's what's normal is monotasking. But there's like an official $2 word for it now, monotasking, okay? I don't know if you can relate to this, but who's ever just felt kind of like, I mean, everyone can relate to this, but maybe some more than others. Halfway through your day, you're realizing, I feel kind of angry or I feel sad. But when I pause and try and think about why, I don't even know. I can't really figure out where is that uncomfortable or painful emotion or reaction, heart posture coming from in me. There's a good chance that you were multitasking and something happened and you went right on to the next thing. So multitasking actually decreases our ability to be present with ourselves and with our emotions and with our soul, with what's going on on the inside. Cause we're jumping around and we lose track of whatever it was that we were supposed to pause and process with Jesus. Now you can throw the slide up, uh, Stella. Dr. Kubu from the Cleveland Clinic says this, we're really wired to be monotaskers, meaning that our brains can only focus on one task at a time. She's a neuropsychologist. When we think we're multitasking, most often we aren't really doing two things at once, but instead we're doing individual actions in rapid succession or task switching, she says. And God just looks at us and goes, how cute. They think they're multitasking, but they're really just doing several, I love how she puts that, individual actions in rapid succession. Doesn't that just sound psychotic? Individual actions in rapid succession. So where am I going with all this? I'm, where I'm not going is that working hard is a bad thing or being productive is a bad thing or um, working, having multiple things you're focused on in life is a bad thing. 
None of that. I am saying it's a bad thing to change your calendar and have nine days in it, okay? That is for sure. But work is good. You know that? Like, work is good. We were designed to work. So the, the big point of my message today, what I'm getting at is not that work is not important or being productive is not important. What I want to get to is that there's something more important than work. There's something more important than being productive. And there's actually even a rhythm of life that we were designed for and that we're supposed to live in that will make us most productive. So Father, we just come humbly to you right now. Me, Wilson, Lord, I come to you as a learner right now. I wanna live in rhythm with you. I wanna resist the speed that you did not seem to live in, Jesus. Will you come and speak to us, Lord? Will you come and give us the ability to identify during this message, during this Sunday, what you are saying to us? And lead us into a place of having um, direction for what we're supposed to do about what you're saying to us. Give us ears to hear right now, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're in this vision series right now. And anecdotally, I would just propose to you guys that even more than a vision series, it's like a foundation series. Just as much as talking about where we wanna go, we're trying to talk about some things that we need to make part of our foundation or things that we need to strengthen as part of our foundation. Maybe, maybe not stuff that's never been talked about in our church or, or it's like to, not, not stuff that's totally neglected, but some stuff that we have neglected is what we're trying to talk about. And so in the South, we've taken this approach of resist and embrace. I don't know if you've noticed that. Every message has been tailored to resist nominal Christianity, embrace, apprenticeship to Jesus. Resist the world's narratives. Embrace God's kingdom story. Resist um, radical individualism. Embrace Jesus's vision for community. And then last week, I left very rebuked and in pain. I don't know if you did too. Resist American consumerism or something like that and embrace kingdom ownership. Super, super good message by Luke. All the messages have been awesome. But what I'm talking about today and the title of my message today is this, resist continuous production and embrace God's rhythm of life. Resist continuous production and embrace God's rhythm of life. So for me in my life, it hasn't been a big issue to try and, you know, like invent a new calendar and work nine days a week. And also, to be honest, I, I even checked this with my wife to make sure I wasn't like lying to you guys. But it's not a big struggle for me to work more hours than I'm planning to or than I'm scheduled to. Like rarely do I work more out, like stay at the office late or come super early. You know, that's not really my vice. However, I am in that 2.5%. I'm an amazing multitasker, okay? <laughs> Just so you know, like that's talking about me, all right? No, I actually have ADD, so I'm a multitask as a dysfunction, okay? <laughs> For me, what it's been has cramming too much into the time I already have. 
saying yes to too many things in the time that's already allotted for me to work. Yes, I'll meet with you. Yes, I'll read that book. Yes, I'll go to that conference. Yes, I will preach that extra sermon. Yes, I will uh, take on this new project. It would be so good for our church. It would be so good if I did this for the church. Yeah, I'll do that. And it's like more and more and more and more. So in 2018, Luke and I, Luke was the tall, handsome guy right here singing during worship. Luke and I became uh, the executive pastors of the church. And before becoming the executive pastors, we weren't actually full-time. So when we became executive pastors, we both became full-time. It's back in 2018. And what that meant was more responsibility, more pay, and more time. More of our time dedicated to the ministry of Inner Northwest. And guess what I did with that time? Filled it right up. Yes, I'll meet with you. Yes, I'll read that book. Yes, I'll go visit that church. Or yes, I want to connect with you. And it was like, it was good stuff that I was adding. But the main thing I was adding was meetings. So like I already have, you know, three to five meetings every week. That's like about equals out to like seven hours or something like that of meetings that are just kind of standard part of my job, my responsibilities here, overseeing employees, um, like staff prayer time, uh, our senior leadership meeting, the monthly staffing, different things that already are uh, filling up my time. But in addition to this, I started to add between 10 and 12 extra meetings onto my calendar every single week. And it was just like, oh, I found out something interesting to you. Like, sorry, some of you guys are going to get like, your heart's broken right now, okay? But they're like, oh, man, I really want to get together with them and talk to them more about this thing. Or, oh, you're, something's going on in your life? Yeah, I'm definitely available. I have one hour between this and that, so let's meet them. More pastoral meetings, more connecting with other churches, more uh, like... I started asking a couple of different, a couple of extra guys, hey, I'd love to disciple you. Would you like to start together regularly to kind of like press into what it means to follow Jesus together? And what was happening was my margin was decreasing, decreasing, decreasing. One of the best um, kind of illustrations of what margin is comes, I learned in a book called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. John Mark Comer didn't invent this, but a good way to describe margin is the difference between your limits and your load. So this is your load. This is how much you can do. This is your capacity. And this is your limits. Everything, or this is your limits and this is your load, okay? This is everything you can do. I mean, that's how I was, was when this was my load and this was my limits. But this is your limits. This is your load. You follow me? All that space is your margin, it's your breathing room to live, to respond to what's the new thing God's wanting me to do. Like, I want to have space in my life for the, the new thing, you know? But what I was doing was more load, more load, more load, more load, more load. Just barely I'm in the black. I have a little bit of margin. And then I was like, I got this. I'm superhuman. And I was in the red. And it was like literally crushing me. The amount of things I was saying yes to, the amount of meetings I was, I was doing, and the way that I was filling up my time and my calendar. And one thing you gotta understand is so much of being a pastor is listening and ministering to other people's pain. 
So much of the work we do is be available for other people to process hard things with us. And I love to do that, but it takes a lot out of me. You know, one side benefit of sharing all this is about half of you are never gonna speak to me again. You're gonna be like, I don't wanna add anything to Wilson's plate. I'm gonna avoid him. And you know what? Good, okay? Like, I have my metron of people I can influence. You know, Jesus had 12. He didn't have 1,000 that he was, he was working with. So what this led to, led to for me was about three and a half years of several migraines a month. Sometimes a migraine every week. I have TMJ, and so like my jaw is where I hold all my stress and tension. And, you know, something would go wrong in a meeting. Someone would say something that I thought was stupid or that made me cringe or whatever. And, and it, you know, like, oh no, gosh, what's the, how are we gonna clean that up? And then I would go right to another meeting. And then that meeting might go well, but then I go to another one and oh, again, something, blah, something happens, it triggers my dysfunction and my pain that's already there, you know? And, and my jaw gets tighter and tighter and tighter. And then it creeps up the back of my neck. And then it travels into my forehead. And then I'm like, okay, just keep going. You can finish the day. And then I get home and I'm like, I need a rice sock or a heating pad, two Tylenol and two Advil and to sleep for the next three hours so that I can like become normal again. So there were times where I was just going home. I would have to go home in the middle of the workday because I literally couldn't keep going. Like my headache was that bad. This past Kingdom Pursuit back in October, I missed one of the sessions, Putty's last session, because my migraine and how, my, how I was feeling and how I had just gone all morning with no break and no limits and no, no no's, you know? I'm doing a lot better now. I'm down to like one migraine a month, okay? Hallelujah. Apex chiropractic. Apex, Dr. Yonke, okay? Um, that's not all, but that's just one quick plug. Another really negative impact this was having, which was much worse than my migraines, was my connection with my wife. My capacity to be friends with my wife. It was like, I come home from work and I'm giving like 75% or whatever I can left to my kids and we're playing and it's so fun. And I'm just like, okay, I gotta be good, da, 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 da. And then they go to bed and I have nothing in the tank left for the most important relationship in my life. Can we please turn the TV on so I can just check out? That was all I would be thinking as Jen would be talking to me or wanting to share with me about her day. I made the idiotic comment once. I was like, can we just start like scheduling time? <laughs> Marriage counseling started right after that. But seriously, what, what that season led to was starting in the summer of 2021, Jen and I saw a marriage counselor every single month up until the end of 2022. And it's been absolutely transformational to our marriage and our connection. And then lastly, my lows were longer and lower. I had longer and lower lows as a result of the way that I was working. We all get bummed out. We all have hard stuff happen, but I couldn't regulate. It would be like, what should have just bummed me out for a day turned into a week. What should have just been a week turned into two weeks. And I mean, like I was being, I was still trying to be present and be faithful, but on the inside, I did not feel connection and life flow with Jesus. 
I didn't feel like the gospel was real and powerful. I was gritting my teeth and going forward. So, where I'm, the question that I wanna ask, that I think all of us can answer very easily is, is that what Wilson was designed for? Is that what I'm designed for, for my life to be like that? Maybe you can't relate to the cramming too much stuff in and getting burnt out, but maybe for you, it's working too many hours. Maybe it's taking on too many tasks at once. Maybe it's not prioritizing vacation. Think for yourself a second, where do I connect with continuous production? Like just the Holy Spirit, show me, where do I relate with continuous production in an unhealthy way? Were you designed for that? Were you designed for that? Turn with me to Genesis 1. Luckily, we have this book that literally tells us about our creation and our design from the get-go. So we have a book of ancient wisdom that was inspired by God himself that we can go to and find really important key answers to the questions I'm proposing. So before we read Genesis, the, the verses in Genesis 1, just to catch us up, um, what's been happening is God has been speaking and creating and um, ruling over the chaos and creating the earth, creating the cosmos. This is where, it, where we're gonna pick up in the story is after day five, five days of creation. And the other thing to note is this, the constant refrain in, in chapter one is this. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. What's really interesting about this is it's not, and there was midnight and then the, we went 24 hours and there's the next day. There was evening. So in the Hebrew mindset and in the Genesis 1 worldview, the day doesn't actually start in the morning. The day doesn't even start at midnight. The day starts at evening. What's evening? Sunset. So just, just tuck that away, okay, as we go forward. Now we're gonna read a big chunk of scripture. Don't worry, I've put a bunch of ellipses in here, okay? So it's not too much. So starting in Genesis 1, 24. And God said, let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds. Skip into verse 26. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you for food, baby. Come on, food, it's good. And it was so. Verse 31, God saw all that he had made and it was very good. Up to this point, everything else was good, but now it's very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. So I know I just read a lot, but hang, hang in with me, okay? Verse 26, this is the key word to get out of everything I just read. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our image. 
if we don't understand and interpret this word correctly, we literally misinterpret the entire biblical story, okay? So if I were to hold up a $100 bill right now and I showed it around here, the first couple rows, and they could look at it and maybe other people in the room have seen 100 before, just kidding, uh, would say, who would they say they see on the, on the $100 bill? Ben Franklin, right? All about the Benjamins. <laughs> now, would they really be seeing Benjamin Franklin? No, they're seeing ink on a green piece of paper because Benjamin Franklin is super dead, <laughs> okay? Like he is very, very dead. If we actually saw Benjamin Franklin, we should all be very alarmed, okay? What you're seeing is an image of Benjamin Franklin, an image. And what does that do? It makes you think of the thing it's imaging. You th it's like none of us have ever seen Benjamin Franklin. None of us have, but we've seen pictures of him. We've seen images of him so we can recognize him so we know what he looks like. We are created in God's image. In the Old Testament, that's the same Hebrew word that's translated here, image, is translated eight times idol. Because all throughout the Old Testament, this is the word that gets translated to describe the idols of the nations. Because that's the idea we're supposed to have is, oh wow, um, and what does that idol do? It's supposed to be where that God, and think, this is really interesting too. What does God do in Genesis 2? With man, he breathes into Adam's nostrils, right? The breath of life. Do you know that actually it's healthier to breathe through your nose? That's not at all my point in my message today. But, <laughs> but there's like a whole book about it, okay? And God knew. <laughs> no. So God breathes into Adam's nose, you know what in, um, it's, it's called the ancient Near East. It's like biblical times, Old Testament times. What they believed was the, the, the gods of the nations, Baal and Asherah and Artemis and all them, what they would do is they'd create an idol and then they believed that wind from heaven, that God would come and breathe into that idol. And then that idol would be animate and able to answer prayer requests or do weird stuff. So, when we are called, when we're designing God's image, it is a heavy, heavy deal. It is a matter of incredible significance. Listen, it's reflective of the fact that we are able, see, so that they may, we're made in his image so that we can rule. We have God's image so that we can represent him. <laughs> so that when people see us, they're seeing the Father. That's how it's supposed to be. Who does that remind you of? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father, Jesus. He was fulfilling and reinstituting this whole idea of being made in God's image. John Walton, an Old Testament scholar, puts it like this. Among the many things that the image of God may signify and imply, one of them, and probably the main one, is that people are delegated a God-like role in the world where he places them. To be made in God's image means rulership and authority. We are supposed to be God's rulers here on earth. So verse 28, 
We're told to multiply or be fruitful, fill and subdue. So multiply is like reproduce image bearers. You know, we're born for reproduction. Um, fill, that means go. Don't just stay here in the garden, go. Subdue, um, continue the creation work that Yahweh has been doing of subduing. And then lastly, rule. Be in charge of what we subdue. Cultivate the earth and rule it. So what does all of this amount to? This is a theology for work. This is a theology for production. This is why you have drive to work. It's because you were made in God's image. You were designed to be like the person you're imaging, to be productive, to rule, and to work. We were designed to produce. But I want you to imagine something with me, okay? So day six happens. Evening, Adam and Eve are created. They're trying out their human suits. This is awesome. Wow, I can run so fast. Whoa, Eve, you look hot. Like, this is sweet, you know? Oh, that fruit tastes good. Like, oh, look, these animals respond to my voice. Oh my gosh, I'm speaking and it's doing what I say. This is awesome. They go to bed, they wake up in the morning and it's still the sixth day. And they're like looking around. They're like, come on, where's Yahweh? Where's God? Like, I'm ready to multiply, fill, rule and subdue, baby. Let's go. Like, where are you? Where's, come on, let's get our, where's like the exit to this place? I want to start spreading the garden. And then this is not in the Bible, okay? But just picture this. <laughs> they find the exit to the Garden of Eden. They're ready to go multiply, fill. They're, they're ready to go start to rule and subdue. And what do they find God doing? What do they find God doing? Resting. They find him resting. Genesis 2, verse 2. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. Because on it, he rested from all, of the, work, all the work of creating that he had done. So immediately, they're made, they're born, they're, they're, they're um, created and they're commissioned. And they're rearing to go. And what do they find the person they're supposed to be imaging doing? Resting. So if they're supposed to accurately represent Yahweh, their creator, the Trinity, to the rest of creation, what do you think they, what cue do you think they take from this? Oh, wow, I'm supposed to rest right now. Before I do any work, I'm supposed to rest. Before launching into their mission, they were supposed to rest. This is what God spoke to me about this. We need to tie imager into imitator. If you're an imager, it means you're an imitator. And on day seven, God rested. So the big question for us is, will we rest? Will we find a rhythm of life where we work from rest. We don't rest in order to work, but we work from rest. This is God's rhythm of life for humanity, that we would work from rest. Think about what Adam and Eve experienced. Created, commissioned, they're supposed to go for it. And what's the first thing that they, is likely that they did? They rested.
Mike Breen says it like this. This is where I got that phrase. Human beings are designed to work, but they're designed to work from a place of rest. We're designed to work from a place of rest. It's an amazing book, Living in the Rhythm with Life. I highly encourage it. So what's that word? Actually, in the Hebrew, it's kind of like Shabbat. You know, like the full word is Sabbath, but it's a verb form here. When it says that God stopped and he rested, it's the verb form or the noun um, Sabbath. It's just Sabbat, basically, like they stopped. So this is where we get that whole idea of Sabbath from. This is where we get the idea of every six days, pausing on the seventh day and resting. And I think that we kind of get that, um, our main, if you're like me, your main thought about work of, about Sabbath and working from rest is like, isn't that like a Jewish thing? Isn't that like the Israelite thing that they're supposed to do as part of their law, right? Listen to what G.K. Beale says, and he points out. It is not the Israelite Sabbath ordinance per se that continues for the church, but rather the creation ordinance. It's not the Israelite Sabbath ordinance, but it's the creation ordinance. In other words, the Sabbath was instituted, this, this embodied way, that's all the Sabbath is. It's a way to practically work from rest. That's it. It's a way to practically, incarnationally, start your life with worship and rest and then go out into work. And what G.K. Beale is saying here is that the Sabbath came before Israel. The Sabbath came before the law. One of the first things that God told the Israelites to do in the, in the desert after the Exodus was to observe the Sabbath. Before he gave the law, he told them to observe the Sabbath. So the big question for you and me is, and I'm not trying to get super hung up on the word Sabbath, okay? That will take a whole month of sermons, which we will be doing in June. <laughs> My point isn't Sabbath, no Sabbath, that word, blah, 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 like... I could give a rip, okay? What I want us to get is the creation rhythm, how God designed the universe to flow into function of working from rest. Working from rest. Created and commissioned, let's go do this. They found God resting. So to close, let's hit some, um, I'm gonna go five minutes over, okay? Let's look at, did Jesus live this out? Can you put up the triangle, Stella? Because, you know, apprenticeship to Jesus, how we're defining it is being with Jesus, becoming like Jesus, and doing what Jesus did. So we need to know, did Jesus work from rest? Is this what he um, exemplifies? Is this what he exhorts us to? Well, the short answer is yes, he was a Jew. <laughs> so yes, he definitely worked from rest. But let's look at some, pra like a practical story that is just so enlightening about how Jesus looked at the Sabbath. Mark 2, verse 23. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields and as the disciples walked along, they began to pick some heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? He answered, have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abiathar, the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the son of man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. So John Mark Comer 
very prophetically and astutely points out that what we have championed in Western evangelicalism and in amidst our American freedom, what we've championed is the second part of that statement by Jesus, not man for the Sabbath. We're like, yeah, I don't need to be legalistic about this thing. Like, don't you dare try and tell me how to live my Christian, like don't put some ropes around how I'm supposed to live. That was my attitude. And what he points out is that maybe actually it's more relevant for us today, the first half of that statement. The Sabbath was made for man. The Sabbath was made for man. Last year, Joe Long preached in June here and his whole sermon was the gift of Sabbath. Embrace the Sabbath as a gift. So when we think about it as a gift, think about how silly it is to not embrace a gift. Like take food, for example. Who here likes food and likes to eat, okay? Like that's a gift. We saw that in Genesis 1. God created it for us to have. It's an amazing experience. We love eating. I want you to fast forward to some like dystopian future 100 years from now where no one eats anymore. Just once a week, we drink this elixir, we get a shot, we take a pill, and boom, we're nutritiousized. You know, we're set. We don't need to eat any at all that week. But then there's like the remnant that likes to eat still. And they're like, yes, give me the ribs. Give me the sparkling water, you know. Give me the chocolate chip cookies. And everyone else is like, what? Oh my gosh, that's so legalistic of you. Why are you eating? Just take the pill, you know. Drink the thing. What? Like, the Sabbath is a gift for us. It's, it's for us to enjoy. And it's, it's how we're even going to rule and subdue. How are we gonna rule and subdue if we do it our own way? When God's way is to work from rest, how are we gonna accomplish the mission unless we receive the gift of Sabbath? Listen to how the NASB just dials this in. Jesus said to them, the Sabbath came into being. It came into existence for the sake of man. Man did not come into existence for the sake of the Sabbath. So the Sabbath, it was created just for us. This principle of working from rest came into being just for us. I could show you more ways that I think Jesus um, initiates this. Let's really look, really quickly look at John 15, four through six. Or actually just, just verse five, B, yeah. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Not, you're gonna bear so much fruit and you're gonna get exhausted. Make sure you go and get a rest afterwards. No, remain in me and you will bear much fruit. Rest, worship, anchor yourself in the Lord, and then go from there if you really wanna bear fruit. This is a cause and effect relationship. If you wanna yield kingdom fruit, you need to work from rest. Remain in Jesus and then bear fruit. So, if you can't tell, this is kind of the transformation for me, is this mindset and this practice of a weekly time to set aside where I'm not producing, where I'm not ruling, where I'm not subduing, where I'm trying to establish my life upon rest, receiving grace from God, realizing that I'm partnering with Him. I didn't invite God to partner with my project. He invited me to partner with His. 
So by, by working from rest, it's a weekly reminder that I'm partnering with him. I'm going with him. This has revolutionized my family's life. Um, it's been a key part of Jen and I's friendship and connection being reestablished is taking one day a week to um, unplug. I turn my phone off. We have paper plates up in there. You know, we're microwaving everything and we're going to the parks my kids haven't been to in forever. My kids are like shouting about the Sabbath every week. Last, last Sabbath, we had a pinata, okay? So another thing I did as, as a, in connection to this whole concept of working from rest, I stepped down from being one of the leaders of the Cincinnati School of Supernatural Ministry. Luke and Clay and I, another pastor in town, started this amazing class. We had like 140 people in it, first round, super successful, super fun, super amazing. But I knew that if I wanted to have this margin thing, I needed to reduce some of the things I was doing. So I said, hey guys, I would like to teach some, but I can't be one of the leaders anymore. And I stepped out of that. I pruned that out of my life to take seriously this thing God's speaking about of working from rest. So let me just hit us with some practicals, okay, to close. And half of these are my wife, because she's a lot smarter than me. <laughs> I got four Ps for us. Number one, prioritize a weekly time of rest. I really think 24 hours is the biblical idea of what it means to work from rest, but it's kind of like tithing. It's not, a, it's not the letter of the law. It's not like, make sure you give 10%, never give 11, never give eight, you know, like, no. So you don't need to start with 24 hours. You can start with four hours. And listen to my wife's insight here about how we chose the time. For us, as we tried to find the day that avoided most social events, Saturdays, and the day after a big work day, Sunday, that's what we looked for. Our kids are not in school right now and our work, and our work has Mondays off. But when those factors change, we'll have to find a new regular rest day. We tried other days at first, eventually realized we had to communicate with our close community about which day we'll be less likely to say yes to invitations, less likely to answer their texts and phone calls. Now our friends know that our rest day is Monday, and if they wanna make plans for Monday, we gotta do it in advance. Second P, prepare for times of rest. You know, like go to the grocery store, clean. This is really good insight from Jen. She realized that she needed to decide which areas of cleaning felt very rest, created an uh, environment of rest for her. So like cleaning out the car and vacuuming the first floor are her priorities as we lead up to our day of rest. Because we can't clean the whole house every week, but if the car is cleaned and the first floor is vacuumed, she can chill and I can chill. So you got to prepare for times of rest. Third, plan some of what you will do when you rest. So don't just like get to your day of rest and be like, what are we gonna do? For me, that's exhausting. Like, let's plan it all out, you know? So in advance, we say, hey, we're gonna go to this park the kids haven't been to. We're gonna pick up a pinata and load it with Skittles, you know? Um, <laughs> we're gonna go for a walk in the woods here. We kind of take the mentality of what would Christmas feel like? What are things we could do that feel like Christmas, feel special and fun and rejuvenating? And then lastly, pause, subduing, ruling, and producing. That's like my filter for what I'll do on my rest day. If it feels like ruling, subduing, and producing, then it's probably not what God has in mind for my day of rest. So like laundry, 
is very much an act of subduing the chaos of earth for my family, okay? No folding laundry on our rest day. All right, do you guys want to stand? I want to pray to close this. In Luke 11, Jesus said, blessed are those who hear the word of God and obey it. Blessed are those who hear the word of God and obey it. So you need to decide. You need to, you know, the word of the Lord is very clear on do not murder, okay? Do not commit adultery. I'm not gonna stand up here and say like the 24 hour Sabbath is this dogmatic thing where God is saying you must practice this. I think there's a ton of wisdom in it. But what I would say to you is, what is God stirring in your heart and your mind today about working from rest? What's the practical step he's inviting you to? It should be costly, it should be painful, but it should be what he's tailoring for you, not for the person next to you and not for me. So just take a moment to give God space to speak to us. And even if he doesn't speak something to you, this is like a prophetic act that you're listening. Lord, we want to be super effective at bearing fruit. We want to rule and subdue. We want to we fulfill the great commission to preach the gospel to all nations, like how Josh and Cassie are doing right now. But Lord, we just take seriously your story in Genesis and your word. We're saying we'll take it seriously, the model you laid before us to work from rest. Will you show each of us how we're supposed to live this out and what our next step in following you in this area is? I just release bravery and conviction, God, to resist the flow of American continuous production, of worldly continuous production. Teach us to rest how you rested, Jesus. I just speak your blessing and your life and your love over everyone in the room. In Jesus' name, amen.